brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we know that uh, you are sovereign in our lives, that you have numbered our days. Lord, you know from the beginning of time when you would uh, take us from this life. And we thank you that you sustain us. We thank you that you are the one who has that determination in mind. Lord, I do pray, God, that you would bring comfort to us, not just uh, Carolyn and her family, but Lord, there are many who have died, Lord, in these last couple of months. I think of Sharon Cody's, uh, her service was yesterday. Uh, Father, there's many here that have lost those they care about, um, even recently. And I pray, God, that you bring the comfort only you can bring, that you would use us even in the lives of one another, to be a source of that comfort. And Lord, we are so grateful that you have made a way that when we die, we can still have hope to be with you. We pray in the name of your dear Son. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like us to go back in time together to just a few days before Jesus' crucifixion. Early that week, Jesus would frequent the temple. And um, so I just wanted to put ourselves back in time. We're we're in a temple. It's early in the week. Uh, Jesus has been there much of the day. In fact, on this particular day was an intense day for him as he threw out all of the money changers who were seeking to earn money in God's house and use it for their advantage in that way. Also, too, we have watched as Jesus was confronted by many of the religious leaders who were asking him question after question, seeking to trip him up. And to trick him, Jesus has spent much of the day teaching, teaching with great intensity. And after the, these final go-arounds with the religious leaders, as Jesus confounded them and left them stumped, so they had nothing else to say, nothing else to ask, they walked away frustrated. And after that, we then see Jesus uh, make his way over to a, a shady spot to sit down. And uh, we would expect uh, he's probably tired Um, from all the many uh, disputes and the attacks that he had been suffering that day, all the teaching that he had done. And so he he takes a seat. You notice that he sits across from uh, uh, one of the money boxes. There were 13 of them that were surrounded the courts of the temple. And he takes a spot near one of them. And as you move a little closer to him, you hear the clanking of the coins as they go down the funnel in these receptacles. The more you watch Jesus, the more it becomes apparent to you that He seems to have deliberately chosen that spot to sit in, that he intended to sit there. For you see that he's intently studying those as they come up to the money box to to give their offering. And as you watch him, you notice that his eyes are fixed upon one particular person going through the offering line. And you turn to see who it is he's looking at. And it turns out it's a poor woman. You can tell by that fact because of the rags that she is wearing. And as those before her were thrusting their many coins into the metal container and you could hear the clanging going on, this woman came up and she drops two small coins, ones that you could barely hear when they went down into the box. And then you look back and you notice a smile forming on our Lord's face. And he turns to his disciples and calls them to himself. And you're close enough to hear him say these words. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Well, I have uh, here one of those little coins, uh, one just like one that she gave. She gave, it's called the widow's mite. It's a small copper coin. It's uh, only worth a few cents uh, in that day. In fact, uh, just a few minutes of labor you would earn this amount. So she drops two of these little coins inside the money box. It was all she had. Jesus knew, right, that this woman gave all that she could give, literally. She surrendered all. And when you hear the story of the widow's mite from Mark Mark 12, uh, there's usually a lot of attention given, and rightfully so, to, to her sacrifice, to how much she sacrificed in giving to the Lord. And indeed, her her example to us is humbling. It is challenging. But what strikes me even more about 
this account about this story isn't just the fact that she gave all that she had, but, but in that account it says that Jesus sat down and observed. That word observe is a word that means to look upon intently, uh, to gaze, to fix your attention on. And the verb tense of that word that he uses there, observed, uh, suggests that he was continually watching. You see, Jesus sat down in that spot across from the money boxes intentionally. He wanted to watch as people came to give. This is a profound thing to think about. God is interested in what we do with our money. It matters to him how we use our wealth. He pays attention to what we give. And we see this not only in the story of a poor widow, but we see all through Scripture hundreds of verses. Some even estimate some 2,000 verses that deal with the subject of money, of wealth, of possessions. We see it often in the Gospels. It was one of the top three topics Jesus would address along with heaven and hell. In fact, God showed how he felt about it when he rebuked those in Malachi 3.8. Many of you are familiar with this verse when God said to them, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, offerings is his response. Or think about in Luke 3. Remember when John the Baptist had, had preached and, and he had called them to bring forth fruits in keeping with, with repentance. And then they asked him, Well, how, how do we do that? What does this look like? And then he gives them three examples. And you know, every single one of those three examples had to do with money. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says this verse, Paul, uh, Paul, God loves a cheerful giver. And these are just a handful of many, many examples all throughout the Bible, which talk about God's interest, his concern, his focus on how we handle our money. So why am I bringing up this topic today? And whatever happened to Ephesians? <laughs> I promise we're going to get there. But the elders had asked me if I would spend a, a few weeks talking about giving, what the scriptures have to say about money. And we felt the need to do this for several reasons. One is that given the emphasis that God has on money in scripture and how giving is one way, we do it every week consistently as a form of worship to him and offering uh, tangibly and financially to the Lord. And I notice as I look back on the messages that uh, here, it's been a few years since we've actually talked about giving from the pulpit. Another reason is that money has become quite a prominent issue lately, hasn't it? With given the, issue, uh, the circumstances in our economy, many people are facing struggles with this. We also need to talk about what the Word says about it on a regular basis because as time goes on, there's more and more bad teaching out there about money and about giving. And also, too, it's an opportunity to remind you, to remind you that there are many needs here in our family. There are many needs here in this body. As I just said, the the economy has taken its toll on several people. There are people who are struggling financially and they need help. And many of us, we may not even know about many of those situations. We also, too, as a church, have needs. We have a a building next door we've just built, and it's a well-used new building. It's being used for many different things, but we still need to pay it off. Also, too, we've added several staff here to, to address the need to shepherd you better. And there are many, many opportunities with missions. In fact, this week I I received a couple of them. I get emails all the time from those who have a heart and desire to go overseas, to do training, to establish churches, uh, uh, to to encourage and and to support those doing that work. So there are many opportunities like that that become available all the time that our missions board uh, would love to have more to be able to help and serve in that way. So we're going to take a few weeks and we're going to look at what the Lord has to say about money. And I come to this topic with much trepidation. It's an abused topic. I don't need to tell you that, right? You can turn on the TV or listen to many messages uh, that talk about money in a manner that is not honoring to the Lord. In fact, there's a movement which promotes a prosperity gospel where people are manipulated and pressured into giving under the promise that God will then bless you in return. It's a godless teaching. It's driven by teachers and listeners who support them, who are driven by greed. 
And the list of those who have exploited people for the sake of money, it's legion. It sickens me greatly to, to see Jesus being used to feed greed. The damage has been great as these charlatans and con artists have really muted the voice of the church and that many fear and shy away from the topic of, of talking about money because they, they might be seen or viewed as just another church, another preacher who wants my money. So I stand here in an uncomfortable position because I know that you know that my livelihood and the livelihood of 13 other people here at Calvary depends on what you give. And so because of that, it's a temptation for me to be concerned about what you think, to fear that you may be uh, questioning my motives or, or that I worry that you may think the elders or, or that myself were just interested in your money. Reminds me of a story of two men who were uh, shipwrecked on a deserted island. And, and one of them began screaming, we're, we're going to die. We don't have any food. We don't have any wa- water. It's over. All the while, his buddy is sitting there leaning next to a palm tree, seemingly unconcerned. And, and the first man says again, don't you get it, man? This is it for us. Nobody knows we're here. We're going to die. And the other man replied, we'll be fine. I make well over $100,000 a week. And the first guy, he goes, what? He's perplexed by that. And he says, don't, don't you understand? What difference does that make? That's not going to help us way out here. Hello? And then the second man said, look, I make over $100,000 a week. And I give over 10% of it to our church. I have no doubt whatsoever that my pastor will find me no matter where I am. <laughs> Now listen, all I have to say about that is if you find yourself on a deserted island, you should be more like the first guy. Because I have no clue what you give. (laughs) But seriously, you know, in the end, in the end, all that matters is that we need to understand what God says about money. He's talked a lot about it. We have much from Him directly in his word we should not let those who abuse and manipulate for the sake of their greed we cannot let them cause us to not talk about it to to avoid the subject for fear of being misunderstood because as i talked about right at the beginning what we do with our money is of great importance to god the first place that we're going to study this is among the most valuable of passages on this topic on money, and it comes directly from our Lord Himself. It is a passage that Bob read from just a few minutes ago in Matthew chapter 6. So if you could please turn there with me, Matthew 6. It is there that Jesus talks about the heart of giving and the hindrance to giving. We see the heart of giving in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. In these verses, we find ourselves in greatest sermon ever preached the sermon on the mount and in that sermon jesus dealt with the topic and focused on what a true believer looks like and he addressed it from many different perspectives and here in chapter 6 verse 19 jesus is telling us what he expects of a believer in regards to his attitude towards money so we'll be beginning in verse 19 where Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's stop there. Jesus expresses and describes here three sets of contrasts. Two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. They all relate to this subject of wealth. Now, this section here in verses 19 and all the way to the uh, verse 34 is not um, independent from what he's been talking about. It's actually connected to what he's been describing and discussing earlier in chapter 6. If you look back in verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus talks about it and he says that uh, do not pursue righteousness for the sake of being seen, for the sake of being noticed by others. Jesus says if you do that, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. 
And then it's interesting, as you look through the next 17 verses, verses 1 through 18 in this chapter, you notice Jesus repeats that word reward seven different times. He gives three different examples. He says, if you, uh, when you are giving to help those in need, don't do it so you can be seen by others. Because if you do, the praise you get from them, that's all the reward you're going to get. But do it in secret. Do it so no one notices, so that when your father sees it, he will reward you. Jesus says the exact same thing when he talks about prayer. And then again in verses 16 through 18 when he talks about fasting. Don't do these things to be noticed. But do them so that when it's done in secret, your father will reward you. So this whole idea of of reward is involved in what he's talking about. Because he's saying doing good things for the purpose of being recognized isn't the problem. Doing things so that you will be praised and rewarded isn't the problem. He says the issue is where you are seeking that reward from. Who are you seeking to be rewarded by? That's what really matters. And so as Jesus comes to this topic of money in verse 19, it's the same issue. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but in heaven. He's talking about where are you looking to get your reward from? Is it set upon the earth and accumulating the world's goods? Or is it set upon God and heaven and seeking his reward, his favor? Here in verses 19 through 21, Jesus gives two contrasting commands related to this. And then he gives the reason for them. That first command in verse 19, don't store up, don't lay up, don't hoard, don't stockpile earthly treasures. Because they are what? What's going to happen to them, he says. They're temporary, right? They won't last forever. In Jesus' day, earthly treasure would primarily be things such as clothing, crops, stored grain, stored food, and money. And here he says moths. He talks about moths. Why does he bring them up? What do they do to clothing? Your new suit. They eat it. Then he says rust. Um, That word can mean the deterioration of materials, but it's primarily used to talk about the act of eating or consuming. And I think that's what he's referring to there. He talks about moths who will destroy your clothing and and things that eat, which will destroy your food. Here he's discussing food. I think he brings it up a little bit later in verse 25. But rodents or worms or insects can easily consume your props or, or your food that you have stored. And then thirdly, he brings up thieves. And what do thieves do? They steal, right? They'll break in and steal your money, your valuables. So Jesus is simply saying here, one's valuables of clothing or crops or stored food or money, all of those could easily be lost by a moth, by by animals, by people, by thieves. And Jesus is just reiterating the same point that Solomon made back in Proverbs chapter 23, when he says, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. And if anything, the last few years has shown us here in this country and around the world, it is that money can vanish at an amazing rate. Homes, savings accounts, stock portfolios, investment funds, for many, these things have made wings and flown away. And in the end, what what is going to happen to our wealth and our possessions. After you're gone, where's all your stuff going to end up? In a public landfill. I mean, I'm literally going through that now. It's half of my house we're tearing out. And guess where that stuff's going? Going to dump. It's getting ground up. You know all the cliches. You can't take it with you or you never see a a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Right? Or, or Job's statement, naked I came and naked I shall return. Now Jesus isn't saying here in Matthew 6 that earning money is a sin. He's not saying that if you save your money, it is a sin in and of itself. In fact, there's a number of passages, especially in Proverbs, that talk about the importance of being diligent to earn money. The importance of, of saving and, and having that money available when it's needed for certain necessities. You see, he's not talking about what we have, right? He's talking about our attitude towards what we have. Notice that he says, don't store up, don't stockpile, don't hoard treasures for yourselves. 
Do not make it the focus of your life to to pile up earthly possessions. Instead, he says, store up treasure in heaven where it won't be lost. It won't be taken. There are no moths. It won't end up in a public landfill somewhere. Randy Alcorn said in his book, The Treasury Principle, and I like how he put this, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Now, Jesus here, he doesn't necessarily specifically spell out what treasure in heaven looks like, but clearly it has to do with matters of eternity, right? And in fact, if you look at Luke 12, we get an idea when he talks about the same exact topic. He brings up being anxious. He talks about uh, the same kinds of things he says here. And he says in verse 33 of chapter 12, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, he's talking about here that unfailing treasure in heaven. And what does he say that is obtained by? There specifically says selling what you have and giving to those in need. When you care for those who do not have. And that care begins with your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. James 2.15 says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Or Acts 2.44 describes the example of believers in the early church where it says, All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Or again in Acts 4, verse 34, it says, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were landowners, uh, owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to any who have need. Matthew 25 Jesus says when you give clothing or food or drink or you visit a fellow believer in need, he said, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. You see, you store up treasure in heaven when you give, when you give to a brother or sister in need. You store up treasure in heaven when you care for the needs of the poor As Jesus told a rich young ruler in Mark 10 when he said, Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Pretty simple principle, really. Jesus is saying, Do you want lasting reward? Do you want to earn the praise of your Father? Then give. Now, yes, the Bible does talk about if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So we need to show wisdom. We need to have discernment and not encourage sinful behavior by giving to someone completely unwilling to make any effort at all. But before doing that, we have to ask ourselves this question. Do you have in your heart a disposition of empathy and generosity? You have to ask the question, do you naturally desire to give away your money, your time, your talents? Or are you storing them for yourself, unwilling to part with them? Another way we store treasure in heaven is seen in the parable that Jesus gave in Luke 16. If you remember that one, he talked about the unrighteous steward who was about to be fired. And so he he goes around to the various people that owed his boss money and he cuts their debt. He just says, hey, here, uh, pay half. Don't worry about it. We'll cut a third off of what you owe. And he did that. He used his master's money in order to make a way for himself after he lost his job. So maybe these guys would take care of him. And Jesus used his example to make a point in Luke 16, 9, when he says this, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. And Jesus' whole point about all that, he's saying, use your money for kingdom work. Treasure in heaven is gathered when you use your earthly treasure to advance the gospel. When you give your money to support gospel work here at Calvary or around the world, like our brother Brian over here in Malawi, to support him 
and help him in the ministry. When you give your time to proclaim the gospel, when you give your home for ministry or for reaching out to unsaved friends and family, when you use your skills with computers or construction or administration or accounting or any sorts of things that help a gospel ministry, they need a lot of that support. In fact, we had, uh, we've sent people over as missionaries who are skilled in computers so they can help with uh, IT and various things for the missionaries that were in the field. These are all different ways to store up heavenly treasure. How do you use your money? How do you use your time, your abilities, what God has given you for yourself or for others? Do you confine what God has given you to advance your cause or God's cause. How generous are you with your money? I love what John Wesley said. He was a man who gave much. He, he said, do all the good you can in all the ways you can to all the souls you can in every place you can at all the times you can with all the zeal you can as long as you ever can. That's the mindset of storing treasures in heaven. It's the heart of Generosity. It's the heart of giving. In fact, you realize one of the reasons that God blesses you is so that you will use that to bless someone else. You know, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Well, right after that, he says in verse 10, these words, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Listen, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Did you catch that? That you will be made rich so that you will be generous with those riches. Randy Alcorn also said this, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but my standard of giving. I like that. You see, this life, it's not all about comfort it's not about accumulating wealth it's about helping it's about being generous it's about giving away stuff not keeping it jesus said we're not to be hoarders but donors we're not to be consumers but contributors we're not to accumulate but we're to disseminate our stuff it's a matter of where your heart is and that's why jesus says for where your heart is for where your treasure is there will be your heart also What you value is where you will give time and effort. If this world is what matters to you, if having things matters to you, if comfort matters to you, if living for this life matters to you, that's where you're going to invest. That's where you're going to focus your time and effort and energies. That's what you're going to be thinking about. That's what you're going to be spending your wealth on. But if being with Christ matters more to you, if seeing Him worshipped matters more to you, if rescuing sinners from hell matters more to you, if seeing broken people go to the great healer matters more to you, if the gospel matters more to you, then that is where you will invest what God has given you. And Jesus here in verse 21, He gives us a litmus test of where our heart is at. He says, you can know the condition of your heart in this way. How your handle, your money will tell you. Then in verses 22 and 23, Jesus presents another contrast, a second contrast. And that contrast he gives in order to warn us to be careful about earthly treasures because there's a danger. They can blind you to the heavenly ones. He uses this analogy of the eye, which if it's healthy, It gives sight and direction. It's like light being seen so you can perceive where you're going and your body can know what to avoid and and where to step. But then he says if the eye is bad, the body will be unable to see clearly. Won't it be able to understand and perceive its surroundings? It'll be wandering in darkness, right? Simple and obvious analogy that he's giving here for the heart. He's saying in the same way, The heart that is focused on money and on accumulating wealth or things will be unable to perceive the spiritual. It will be blinded to what matters in eternity. Having wealth. And and when I use this word wealth, don't be thinking I'm talking about the top 1%. Okay? We're the top 1% compared to many people in the world. (laughs) Right? We're all, uh, I see everybody's got clothes on. I'm guessing you probably had something to eat this morning, or at least you will have when you leave today. That we have hospitals 
that can care for many of our needs that many in the world don't have. We have so many things. We are the top 1%. We are wealthy in many ways. Some of us have more than others. So when I use this word wealth, don't think of it as somebody else. And having that wealth can be like having glaucoma if we're not careful. You know, glaucoma is something that starts often hardly noticed and it slowly over time deteriorates your eyesight until at one point you're almost blind. Remember my mother-in-law when she had uh, her uh, lenses replaced uh, and she she got to a, a point where they had one replaced before the other and she said she was amazed at the difference. She could hardly see out of the one eye. She didn't even realize how bad her eyesight had become. I think I'm talking about cataracts. That's what I meant. Scratch that. Cataracts. A medical degree I have not. <laughs> you get the point. Before you realize it, our wealth can do the same thing. Now, why is Jesus so concerned about our money? Don't we know? Who owns everything? God does, right? Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. Or Haggai 2.8, he says, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Or in Psalm 50, verse 10, Every beast of the forest is mine. Everything that moves in the field is mine. Okay, God, so if it's yours, I know you don't need my money. I, I know that you can provide for anyone, anywhere, anytime. Why do you care about my money? Why do you care about what I do with it? Why do you expect me to give it? Why make me the middleman? Well, Jesus brings his concern and I think the reason into focus in verse 24. Look there. He says, no one can serve, which literally means be a slave to, two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or that's the Aramaic word for wealth, riches. That's it right there. That's what Jesus has been aiming at when he started from verse 19. You can't give allegiance to two masters. You cannot be rich towards God when you are consumed with being rich towards yourself. You're either a slave to him or a slave to your stuff. Calvin said of this verse, Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. And in the end, this all comes down to what or who you will worship, money or Jesus. I like how J.C. Ryle put it. He said, Dagon and the Ark cannot be in the same room together. That was the story he's referring to where they put the Ark and the Philistines in the temple of Dagon and the next day is he's on the floor. That's like putting Coke with Pepsi, right? Mayonnaise with Miracle Whip. <laughs> Levi's and Wranglers, Ford and Chevy. They don't go together. You can't have them both. It's one or the other. The heart of giving cares more about serving God than self. It seeks to advance God's cause rather than self. It looks first to give rather than receive. It wants to be blessed in order to be a blessing. And God ultimately gives us things to see what we will trust in more. Will it be in money or in Him? Will it be in the creation or the Creator? Will it be in enjoying the gift or the giver? And this issue of what you will trust in prompts Jesus when he moves to verse 25. It prompts him to bring up this whole issue of what you're going to trust in. What the hindrance to giving really is. So look at verse 25. Jesus says there, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these but if God so arrays the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. 
For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Did you catch a word that Jesus repeated there several times? It's in verse 25, 27, 28, verse 31, verse 34. Anxious or worry. Repeats it several times, six times here in these ten verses. He uses this word which means to be worried, to be anxious, to be fretting, to be overly concerned. Four times he gives the command, don't be worried, don't be anxious. Why are you worried? Why are you anxious? Clearly the theme here in this section. And he begins in verse 25 with those words, for this reason or therefore, because he's indicating what he's going to talk about now is totally connected to what he's been saying. Many people, when they teach on verses 25 to 34, they just focus attention on those verses, but they are connected to what he's been talking about starting back in verse 19. He'd been addressing possessions, right? And what's the connection between talking about uh, possessions, storing up earthly treasure, and being worried? What's the connection there? What is the root of worry? Discontentment, right? A lack of trusting in God. A lack of trusting in God. You see, verses 25 to 34 all have to do with the issue of trust. What or who do I really trust in? If I trust in money, then I'll be anxious when I don't have it. If I trust in wealth, then I'm, I'm going to worry about how I'm going to gain it, how I can have food and clothing and everything else. If I trust in earthly treasure, I will not be willing to give it away because I need it. I must have it to take care of myself. So Jesus poses the question in these verses, essentially saying, will you trust in God or riches? Which is it? The hindrance to giving is trusting in my money more than God to take care of me. See, we don't need money to live ultimately, right? Jesus said, Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out the mouth of God. We do need food in one sense, but ultimately we need God. And so Jesus walks us through here in these verses how and why we should trust in God, that we should put our confidence in Him as opposed to material things. And note the material things he mentions here. We would call them the necessities of life, right? Food, clothing, drink. And Jesus isn't saying that these are irrelevant or or unimportant or don't matter. He sought out food and shelter, didn't he? Jesus talked about it. He even taught in the Lord's Prayer that we should ask daily for food from the Lord. But again, the issue isn't having the need but what you are depending on to fill that need. Jesus is exposing a worship problem in the heart. The person who is inclined to storing up earthly treasures is the one who trusts in them. The purpose who serves mammon, serves wealth, will look to mammon to provide for his or her basic needs. And so here in verses 25 to 34, Jesus comes up to the issue of storing treasure uh, from another angle. He's going to do it by showing us why we should trust God over wealth. And to do that, he's going to draw two examples from nature for us. One is the birds. The other is flowers. Verse 26, he directs their attention to the birds. It's likely that there was probably a flock that was going by. The birds are very common in Israel. In fact, there's a a book for those of you who are interested called All the Birds of the Bible. It's written about 50 years ago. But in any event, Jesus says, consider, look at those birds. Pay attention to them for a moment. Think about this. Those birds are flying around. They they don't grow crops. You don't see a a bird out, you know, uh, hoeing a field. You don't see a bird watering. All you see them do is plucking the seed out of it. God still provides for them. Psalm 147 verse 8 says, Who covers the heavens with clouds, speaking of God, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow in the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. God cares for even the birds, Jesus says. How much more so for you? Yes, both birds and humans are made by God, but only people are made in His image, right? Only people are those for whom Jesus died. 
Jesus makes the same point again in verse 28 as he draws their attention away from the sky and down to the ground. He says, observe or look carefully at the lilies here. Now that word lily, actually uh, scholars think they could refer to many different kinds of flowers, perhaps even a, a poppy, a gladiola, a daisy, other kinds. Jesus was simply probably pointing to wildflowers that were growing next to him on the hillside. And he says, hey, hey draw your attention down here. Look, look at these flowers. Look at them for a minute. You don't see any uh, uh, you know, sewing machines next to them, do you? You don't see them working and toiling to make themselves look like that. But look at them. They are beautiful. God is the one who made them that way. It's a beauty that they did not achieve by their own effort. And Jesus says, if, if God so adorns these plants, which they're going to dry up soon and be gone, if he would adorn them in such a way, how much more does he care for you? Now, Jesus, he's not promoting laziness here. He's not saying, oh, don't, don't worry about anything. Just sit back and relax. You don't have to lift a finger. Those birds over there, this food just, you know, they're being fed. So you don't need to worry about working or toiling or any of that stuff. He's not promoting that. In fact, Martin Luther said this when he looked at this verse. He said, God wants nothing to do with the lazy, gluttonous bellies who are neither concerned nor busy. They act as if they had to sit and wait for him to drop a roasted goose into their mouth. Luther always did have a way with words. God, God is the ultimate provider, is Jesus' point. He is the one that will give. And he uses means, though, right? The birds do have to fly around. They do have to look and search and eat. So, too, we must work to earn the income needed for food and clothing and the like. But, again, the issue is what you are relying on even as you work. Where ultimately is your dependence? Do you trust God to provide for you? If he makes sure even the weakest, the most vulnerable parts of his creation are cared for, Jesus is saying, will he not do much more for you? So Jesus again says in verse 31, don't be anxious. That's what the Gentiles do. Those who don't know God, who have no relationship with him. That's what they do. They worry. They toil and fret. They lose sleep. They're anxious. They're overly concerned because that's all they have. All they have is money. All they have is what they work to possess. They can only live for the here and now. But Jesus says, you, you have a kind father who knows what you need. And he throws that statement in, oh, you of little faith. I think he's saying there, have you forgotten who your father is? Doesn't he care for you? Doesn't he know the number of hairs on your head? Some of you may remember this poem by Elizabeth Cherney. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why those anxious human beings run about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Now, God isn't a father to the animals as he is to us, but I think that Elizabeth uh, captured the sentiment of Jesus very well here. God cares for us as a loving father. Just a few moments later in Matthew 7, verse 7, Jesus said this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. He who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he said this, Oh, what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if, you, if he asks for a fish... He will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Our Father can be trusted, can he not? He does love us. He does care. Now, as we talked about last week, that doesn't mean that we'll be free from all trial and affliction and that there won't be difficulties and hardships in our life. There may be days of hunger. There may be days of lack of clothing, of loss of work, of lacking a place to live. And that is when we can again take comfort in knowing that our Heavenly Father knows our needs and to trust that whatever He decides, whatever reason He has brought this issue and allowed it to take place in our life, that we can know and be confident in Jesus is saying here, we can trust Him. He will do what is good for us. As he said there, our Father who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him. 
As J.C. Ryle said here, we may only be sure of this one thing, that if tomorrow brings a cross, he who sends it can and will send grace to bear it. Verse 33, Jesus reiterates here the point of all he's been saying up to now when he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be what? Added to you. He's saying, right, those who don't know God, they eagerly seek comfort and satisfaction from the things of this life. Their pursuit is the creation. But we, on the other hand, we are to seek what matters most to God, his kingdom and his righteousness. Our trust and our focus isn't to be on earthly things. We're not to have our minds set on the things of earth, but on the things above. And we can understand what Jesus meant when he talks about seeking God's kingdom. Just look back in the Lord's Prayer, just a few verses earlier, when Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom has this idea of of reign, of of God being honored as king, of of seeing the king uh, being lifted up, of seeing his will being carried out, of seeing his kingdom expanding. And the first step to seeking first his kingdom is this, to be a part of that kingdom. It is to bow the knee to the king. It is to change allegiance from self to Christ. It is to admit that you've been trying to build your own kingdom apart from him. To be part of his kingdom means that to seek that first means this. It means that we would go to him, confess our sins, tell him, yeah, I've been seeking to build my own kingdom. I've sinned against you. I've rebelled against you. Will you forgive me? That is seeking first his kingdom to repent from your sin, to walk away from those things that dishonor Christ and be willing and commit to following him. And whoever puts his faith in Jesus and in his work on the cross, to pay for your sin. Whoever does that, He will forgive them. He will make you a citizen of His kingdom. And more than that, He will make you His child. And as a child of the King, we then seek first His kingdom by following the King and also by persuading others to do the same. Then Jesus talks about seeking first His righteousness. It's a similar idea. It carries the idea of pursuing holiness, of pursuing godliness. It is to learn what is right and then by God's grace seek to live it out. It is too, as Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is to follow Christ's example. So by seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, Jesus is telling us not to worry about the temporary things of earth for God will take care of those things. Don't depend on them. Don't make your trust in them. You need to be focused on one thing and one thing alone. You need to be focused on one person and one person alone. That is God. That is what what is He doing in this world? What does He want to do through you? Make it your concern to lift up the name of Christ. Make it your aim to know God's will from His Word. Make it your priority to live out that will. Make it your business to live a life of faith. Make it your purpose to worship God, to trust Him, to cling to Him. Those are seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Make God's agenda your agenda. Worship God over possessions. Trust in Him alone for everything. But that can be hindered. That can be hindered. If you're storing up earthly treasures, if you're not giving of yourself or your possessions, if you're trusting in money to bring comfort, if your wealth is your security, if you have a preoccupation with the things of this world. And this is so, so hard for us in this culture. I'm sure, I'm certain that those words for where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm pretty confident most of us have heard those before. I'm pretty confident most of the things that we've been talking about this morning are not new things. And we know we need to be giving. We know we need to be caring for the needs of others. We know we need to be seeking His kingdom and His righteousness as primary and focus above all. We know these things. But we live in a culture that's giving us cataracts. Don't we? There's wealth all around us. Wealth all around us. And and it's a danger for us. Because it can blind us without us even knowing it. The heart of a giver doesn't let those hindrances of trusting in temporary things distract him. And brothers and sisters, I just want you to consider a couple of things. Look at your schedule. 
Look at how you spend your money. Look at what consumes your time. Consider what you think about most. What is often on your mind? What occupies your thoughts? And then do this. Ask yourself in the quietness of your own heart, where is my treasure, really? There was a man who lived in Jericho. He had a great love for money. And as a chief tax collector, he had amassed a great sum of it. Then he met Jesus. As Jesus was going through Jericho one day, this man had to see him. The problem was he was vertically challenged. So he was determined. He climbed up a tree. And when Jesus saw Zacchaeus in that tree, he said, Come down. I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus scurries down, and as they were on their way to his home, he says with great excitement to Jesus, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Three was the requirement. I'll give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. Now I have a question. How did Jesus know Zacchaeus had come to true, genuine, saving faith? The first evidence of a transformed heart is that it will be willing to part with riches to store up treasure in heaven. May we all follow in our brother Zacchaeus' example. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us much, some more than others, Lord, but, but you have given us beyond our needs. Lord, may you help us, please. Help me. For I know this week has been hard just as I'm examining my own heart. Lord, help us to not be distracted. Help us not to be blinded by our possessions. But Lord, give us a heart to use them, to use our time, to use the gifts and skills you've given us, to use the wealth you've given us, Lord, to advance your gospel to help those in need, to come alongside our brothers and sisters. Lord, move move in our hearts so that we would, Lord, store our treasure in heaven so that we would follow the instruction of our Savior to, Lord, to be careful and to, Lord, think about these things, to remember you can be trusted, to depend on you. Lord, I know that There are some here, Lord, that their wealth has, Lord, caused them not to see. I pray, God, by Your Spirit that You would open all of our hearts, show us areas in all of our lives that we are trusting in our our things more than You. Father, we thank You that You do care for us. We thank You that You provide. Lord, just remind us of that every time we see a bird, every time we look at a flower, that You do love and care. Lord, we want to trust you above all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.